Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. I want to start by saying thank you so much for joining us. If you're joining us live on either Twitter Spaces or on the, the YouTube, we're still trying to figure out the streaming thing. Hopefully, we're, we're getting a few places. We'll see as we, as we go. It has been a absolutely nutty week in Alberta politics. Um, it, it seems like we say that almost every episode, and then the next week comes along and it's like... <laughs> You thought the last one was bad. Wait till you see what we have in store for you. Um, so we're going to be going through a bunch of that stuff. But before we do, just a little bit of housekeeping. I just want to mention as well, if you're one of our Patreon supporters, we do have our Discord up and running. So if there's anything that you want to add to the conversation, uh, anything that you think that we got wrong, anything that you want to correct us on, or if you just want to say mean things about me. You could do that all on our Discord. The link is up in our Patreon page. That's exclusive for our Patreon supporters for the time being, although we are looking at maybe finding a way to expand the interactivity, the 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 chattiness of these things. Um, just to do the other little bit of housekeeping as well, we are going to be opening up the floor as we always do once we get through the program proper uh, for the people who are listening and hanging out on the Twitter spaces. So if there's something that you want to add, if there's a topic that you think is, is really important that we missed, which we probably will because it was just that kind of week, then if you're on Twitter spaces, all you have to do is click on the little microphone thing around the bottom left-hand corner. Um, we will absolutely get you. The only rules that we gotta gotta put out of the immediately are no profanity. Well, no profanity is allowed, um, but nothing hate speechy, please. Uh, because if you do, then I'll just shut you off and probably say mean things about you. Um, getting started though, getting into the week, we're gonna start with some good newsy stuff, some some lighthearted stuff, hopefully. Um, and then we're going to work our way into the the muck, as as it were. Um, so the first first piece is for Canadians who, or sorry, for Albertans who have direct deposits set up, they should have all received um, the the very first two installments of the carbon tax rebates. So the carbon tax rebates went out to Albertans on Friday, and if you had direct deposit, then it showed up in your bank account. Magically, if you don't have direct deposit, then you'll get a check whenever you get a check. But there's some things about the carbon tax that we wanted to take a few minutes to highlight. So first of all, for a single Albertan, because this is two payments, uh, most Albertans are looking at receiving $269.50. Uh, for a family of four, there's a bunch of things that get added on. You get extra stuff for extra kids, more family members, all that kind of thing. Um, most family members will be looking at, or families of four, will be looking at getting about $539.50, which is great news for a lot of people because the cost of living is very, very high right now. Important to note, though, the carbon tax only represents a very, very small portion of what's driving the cost of living. And in fact, most Canadian households, most Albertans for sure, will actually get more in the rebates than they would, uh, than they pay to the carbon tax. 
So there's a, a journalist named Kim Seaver who worked out the numbers. This is where we're stealing our numbers from. Uh, he worked it out that the average household in Alberta will pay out about $598 in federal carbon tax charges. But over the course of a year, the average incentive payment will be at least $953. So most Albertans are going to come out very far ahead almost double in some cases. It's, it's about, according to Kim Seaver, it's about 59.4% that they're getting back than they would pay out. So for most Albertans, it's a net gain. It's a positive thing. Now, for people who have multiple cars or do a lot of traveling or drive Hummers and just leave them running in the driveway for reasons, yeah, they're probably going to feel the 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 impact of the carbon tax a little bit more. But for most Albertans, it's a really good thing that these rebates are coming in and that most Albertans are getting more money back than they're actually paying out in carbon tax, especially with the cost of living being so high. Now, the way that it works out, we're just going to throw it on the screen here really quick. Just to be really clear, we pulled these numbers off of uh, the government website. So the Alberta program provides an annual credit of $539 for an individual. That's for a year. $270 for a spouse of common law partner. $135 per child under 19. And $270 for the first child in a single parent family. Now, there's a lot of people who are saying, ah, oh, but rural Alberta, you know, they got to drive farther. And in fact... There is a rural supplement of 10% of the base amounts for residents of small and rural communities. So that is considered. Now, you can debate whether or not the 10% is enough or not enough, but it exists. It's there. And so that's, that's what we wanted to start with. Everybody got some money. Money's nice for things. Our next story, moving on from there, that we wanted to talk about has to do with Alberta Day. So Jason Kenney announced that from now on, September 1st is going to be a holiday known as Alberta Day. And he thinks that it's really important from his tweet that we're creating a new annual tra uh, tradition on the day that we entered Confederation. We're going to celebrate our heritage, all that kind of good stuff. Here's where it gets a little interesting, though, because he actually made the exact same announcement last year. So last year, in 2021, he did a whole thing about, hey, it's Alberta Day, everybody, on September 1st. But it even goes back farther than that. Because the year before, current UCP leadership candidate, uh, Leela here announced that September 1st was going to be known as Alberta Day. So this holiday has been in the works as Alberta Day for pretty much two, two, two and a half years now, almost three years now. Um, but it actually goes back even farther because in 1974, Alberta Heritage Day was created. And it was created, you know, Mr. Kenny was worried, deeply worried about not having a holiday to celebrate Alberta's heritage. I just want to read a quick little excerpt from the act that created Alberta Heritage Day. Whereas it is fitting that a special day of the year should be appointed for the people of Alberta to recognize and celebrate the cultural heritage of Alberta, to pay grateful tribute to the memory of the early inhabitants and later settlers who have contributed to the history of the province and to dedicate themselves anew to the maintenance and furtherance of our cultural traditions of our native and founding peoples. It's almost as if Mr. Kenny wrote that himself, but instead we're just going to call it, we're not going to call it Alberta Heritage Day anymore. We're just going to call it Al Alberta Day. The, the really important thing though is it's not a stat holiday. 
So it'll just be another holiday where where all of the, the the UCP folks and politicians can say, "Hey, look, it's this day. Have a good time at work." Um, moving on from there and starting to get into a little bit more of the we're, we're working our way into the seriousness mess, but we're also still able to have a little bit of fun. Uh, Mr. Kenny, there was a uh, two-day summit that happened uh, on the West Coast where premiers were talking about, uh, in particular, they were talking about federal funding for healthcare. Now, this gets really complicated really, really quick because the federal government does fund a lot of healthcare stuffs. The provincial government does also do that and decides how to spend the money because the provinces are responsible for the administration of healthcare. But it's very, it's a strange thing for the provincial government to be asking, hey, you know what? We need more money for healthcare, especially in Alberta. We need more money for healthcare, but we're going to cut most of our, our revenue streams. We're going to cut our corporate tax. We got really, really lucky again with oil and gas this year. Um, but hey, if we could have some more money, that would be, that would be wonderful. Um, it's a bit of a weird take. The weirder take, though, was Mr. Kenny made a whole big thing about how the federal government shouldn't be uh, talking about the healthcare situation over the media. Um, presumably, though, that doesn't include social media because Mr. Kenny put up a big thread where he talked about how people need better health care. Ottawa can make that happen. We need the, the, the feds to step up. Alberta needs better health care. And then he put up... A graphic that, for reasons we're not too sure about, had a, a, a map of, of BC. So maybe he's been referring to the, the UCP curriculum a, a bit more. Uh, but see the Premier of Alberta tweet out a map of BC was a, was a, a fascinating little take. Um, with healthcare, though... We saw again this week multiple physicians raising the alarm about the EMS crisis in Alberta. There's an ER physician who tweeted out, our EMS system is in free fall. Transport is next to impossible. Wait times for an ambulance to transfer a patient from a hospital can be in days. Patients miss tests because transport can't be arranged between hospitals. EDs, emergency departments, sit full of patients who can't be brought to where they need to go. We've seen this story come up over and over and over again, and Lord knows we've talked about it quite a bit on the show, but the bottom line is this. All of healthcare is in a crisis right now. But when we have ER physicians taking to social media to try to raise the alarm on the EMS situation, that's something that should really alarm everybody. Because when ambulances can't get to the places that they need to go, when ambulances can't get to the people who need them, it's very different than a patient who's in the hospital. The The physician in this tweet is talking about the, the hospitals not being able to get patients out of the hospital or to testing. Well, those at least those people are in care. Somebody sitting on the side of the road, somebody sitting at the, the base of their stairs, somebody sitting in a car crash, they don't have any kind of health care. They're not inside of a hospital. And we're seeing more and more. We saw at one of Daniel Smith's uh, rallies earlier on in the week, we saw a paramedic stand up and ask for her position on things. And she gave a very word salad, in my opinion, answer uh, that was really not very committal and actually 
indicated based on our conversations with uh, Mike Parker, president of HSAA, that she doesn't actually know what the situation is in EMS. But that's going to be a little bit of a theme as we get longer into the episode, the things that Daniel Smith doesn't seem to know. Um, but it's something that really should be important. And it's something that that I think that people should be demanding, especially UCP leadership candidates, be doing a better job of making sure that they're addressing with specifics. Because we saw a couple months ago, there was a 10-point plan that rolled out. And yet we saw this week, multiple physicians tweeting out about the serious state of healthcare in Alberta right now. Moving on from there, COVID. Nobody's tired of talking about COVID, right? I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired of talking about COVID. But there is some news to talk about in regards to COVID. Ontario leading the charge in fourth boosters. Ontario announced this week that they will be, um, or sorry, fourth shots, second boosters, depending how you want to say it. They announced this week that they're going to be providing fourth boosters. As it stands right now, in Alberta. We're waiting still. And all of this is going on while we're seeing drastic reduction in PCR testing. So it was announced this week that you can now only get a PCR test if it's referred by a medical professional. So basically, you need to have your physician say, you know what, this person specifically needs a PCR test. So the PCR testing has gone down even more, which means we're losing track much more of what the actual case numbers of COVID are looking like. But from the, the evidence that we have, it's not looking great. PCR testing, as you can see here on the, the screen, if you're watching the YouTube version, PCR testing has dropped way down. But the positivity rates in Alberta are actually going up. So the number of tests that are getting done are actually yielding higher number of people who are actually positive. Wastewater numbers are also going up. But this graphic here that I have on the screen, and I'll try to verbalize it for the folks that are on Twitter. We did share it out through our Twitter account earlier in the week. But this graphic right here speaks to how many people are in hospital right now compared to the last couple of years. And it's really important to, to throw in the distinction that these are people who are hospitalized. This isn't ICU numbers. ICU numbers are actually, by and large, better, which is good. Hospitalization numbers are definitely not better. They're significantly higher in most places. So you take a look at the number of people who are in hospital right now, and you compare it to the number of people who are in hospital a year ago, or even in most cases, two years ago. And in some of the months of the last year, it's well more than double. So the plus side is we're seeing fewer patients who are going to the ICUs, which is great. The downside is we're seeing a lot more patients who are still having to go into hospital. And that's definitely not great. Moving on with the COVID piece, another big chunk of scandal was revealed this week when it came out that further documents were released in regards to the uh, Alberta Federation of Labor and the group of parents that are proceeding with court stuffs against the government because the government made the decision we're just going to remove masks in schools. Schools aren't allowed to have masks anymore. You can't mandate masks in schools anymore. So if a kid wants to wear a mask, a kid can, but otherwise you can't force any kids to wear masks. This is the rule across the province, full stop. And there were a lot of parents who had kids who were uh, potentially compromised. They were more vulnerable because of healthcare conditions who were saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This is going to affect my kid's ability to go to school. This is going to affect my kid's education. 
Why are we making these decisions? And so a, a court case was launched to say, hey, we really want to see what's going on. What was the justification? And it turns out it was mostly, it seems to be for sure that it was mostly political. There's a couple of key pieces that came out though. So one of them was the, the province effectively was comparing areas that had masks uh, and areas that didn't have masks. And what they found was schools that were using masks were three times less likely to experience outbreaks. Schools that didn't use masks had three times more outbreaks. And those are really significant numbers when we're talking about kids, especially when we talk about the fact that one of the other things that came out is that one of the schools that was being observed by the provincial government was determined to actually have significant impact on community spread. Now, this has been a talking point from the provincial government for quite some time where they've been saying over and over and over again, oh, you know, the schools, they don't contribute to, to community spread. Not a big deal. Don't need to worry about it. Well, it turns out it does. And they knew it did. And that's a really big deal. In the words of uh, AFL President Gil McGowan, when he was asked what he thought about the, what the documents meant, um, the quote that we're going to use here, they had their eyes clearly focused on politics and their own narrow political interest rather than the broader public interest where the focus should have been. So it's very clear at this point and only getting clearer as this court case goes on, that the decisions that were made when it came to protections in schools certainly seemed like they had more to do with political expediency than it actually had to do with protecting kids. And when you start to factor in the reality of long COVID for kids, and now that we can also say that the government knew that schools had an impact on community spread, the communities that are experiencing long COVID, the people, the Albertans who are experiencing long COVID, they knew that all of these things were risks. But we had to have the best summer ever. Moving on from there, and this is probably going to be a, a spicy little one. More news about Thomas Dang this week. Now, there's a lot of people who argue, and you can... You can go both sides on this if you want to. There's a lot of people who argue that, well, you know, Thomas Dang, he was doing white hack hacking. He was doing pretty basic stuff in the, the realm of hacking. I, I can get my microwave to work some days. And for those who have been following the show, you can see how long it's taken us to get the, the live stream kind of working. Um, so <laughs> uh, hacking is not something I can speak to with any kind of authority. But there's a lot of people who have said, you know, it was really quite a basic, it was a rudimentary hack that Mr. Dang used in order to uh, get into the databases that he got into. There's people who have called it a set and forget it hack. Um, and, you know, that is part of the story for sure. But the bigger part of the story and the part of the story that has been kind of neglected has to do with the timeline of what happened after he successfully hacked it. Because it was revealed in court documents that uh, after he was uh, successful, he ran two extra tests after that to make sure that what he was doing was actually working. And he spoke to, uh, according to court documents, he said he had notified 
NDP Chief of Staff Jeremy Nolay, so that's Rachel Nutley's Chief of Staff, and NDP Director of Communications Benjamin Aldrit, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that right, um, about his findings. So right after he did it, he told the NDP powers that be, hey, I did a thing. And it turns out that Aldrit sent an email to the government and said, hey, guys, um, there's this vulnerability. But the way that he said it is what's particularly revealing, because what he said, allegedly, according to these court documents, is that uh, an informant had tipped them off. He said, it's possible that this is a prank, but their tone seems genuinely concerned. Hopefully the department can look into this ASAP. So here's where the problems come in. If you're going to make the argument that what Mr. Dang did was a noble and virtuous thing and he was trying to protect the data of Albertans, that's a really hard circle to square with the reality that the NDP, powers of be, apparently, at the very least, tried to mislead the government into who was responsible. And at the worst deliberately tried to misdirect the government in regards to who was responsible. This all happened three months before he was removed from caucus. And technically, I'm pretty sure, working from memory, so I might be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that he actually removed himself from caucus. I don't think that he was like full out proper booted. Um, but in that time space, between when he reportedly said these things to the chief of staff, to Rachel Notley, and the communications director for the NDP. In between that space and the space where he left caucus, he was actually promoted to the party's democracy and ethics critic. And again, if we were to take the position that Mr. Dang had done this because it was the right and good thing to do and he did nothing wrong and he shouldn't be charged and all of this is just hype, cool, you can make that argument if you want to, but then you have to try to reconcile it with the fact that the NDP didn't, NDP communications director apparently, didn't feel comfortable saying, oh yeah, that was our guy. We stand behind him 100%. They didn't say that. Instead, they said, as some party informed us, and it, you know, it might have been a prank, hard to say. Um, and that's, that is pretty telling. Moving on from there, though, and this is where things are probably going to get a little bit spicy. Danielle Smith had a heck of a week. She's had a heck of a couple of weeks, but the last week in particular was really something to behold. Uh, and we're going to go through some of the... If we were to try to go through all of the things, um, we'd, be, we'd be on till midnight, probably, if not later. We don't want to do that. Um, so we're going to kind of go through the greatest hits. Um, but there was a lot that happened. Um, and to start with, we're going to go straight to some of the video hits. Because Daniel Smith held a rally in Airdrie. And at that rally in Airdrie, she said, let's go with some things. And we're going to play. We're going to play some of those, some of those things for you right now. And so I'm thinking about what we need to do. We need to Uber-fly government. That's kind of what we need to do. When you think about what Uber did, Uber allows you as an individual to sign up because you want to receive a service. and allows another person to sign up because they want to deliver a service. 
And then they have an application that connects the driver to the person who wants to be driven, and they do automatic payments, and it has eliminated virtually all of the bureaucracy that you would have from a central dispatch system. So think about that. How do we require public services? Now, that was Smith answering a question about how she was going to deal with the the bloated bureaucracy that exists inside of government. And I think it's really worth noting that over the last three years, we've certainly seen the value uh, to some degree of the bureaucracy that exists, although it has been pretty aggressively beaten down by uh, the the current government, by many accounts. Um there's, there's a lot of things that the bureaucracy of government does. Now, there's no questions. In some places, there's ways that money gets spent that anybody can shake their head at and go, I don't understand what's happening here. But there's a lot of places where it's really important. More to the point, there's a lot of the bureaucracy that exists that deals with a lot of private and very sensitive information. And so to suggest that we gig economy all of the government services that exist is not only ignoring a lot of the inherent problems when it would come to privacy. But it also suggests a uh, privatization of government services, which as we've seen with a lot of these gig economy companies, results in workers being treated poorly, workers not making much more than a living wage, and in many cases not even making a living wage, and questionable delivery of, of, of services and products, let's say. But Smith was only getting started because she also got asked about education. Setting up micro schools for learning pods, allow a teacher to say, I want to set up a one two schoolhouse, and I want to be able to attract kids across all the grade levels. That's how we built education in this province. My great grandmother came up from New Brunswick to teach in a one room prairie schoolhouse. So maybe everything old is new again, especially now that we've got all the online learning programs. And that's allowed you to actually think about it. Maybe there are people have day rooms with five kids. Maybe a teacher just wants to teach five kids. Maybe they want to teach ten. Maybe there's three teachers frustrated at how they're being treated in their school environment. Maybe they would set up a larger school. So that, to me, is the way that we're going to change it. Is if we can get funding following the students directly to the school and allow for teachers to set up their own schools as competition, it's going to have a transformative effect. Now, Smith's probably right. It would have a transformative effect. But as we've seen from the outcries from teachers since she announced that plan, I guess, since she announced that plan, a lot of teachers have said, whoa, 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 whoa. There are so many logistical problems. There are so many insurance problems. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that what teacher is going to want to have five kids in their house all day um, and, and teaching them all of the subjects, especially when you start to get into uh, higher levels of school. Um, so when you get into your, your, your high schools, teachers have designated teaching areas that they are good at. And they, they get good at those areas. And to say that one teacher would provide all of the, the subject matter, all of the materials, and somehow having five students would be enough to fund that, would be enough to fund the materials, would be enough to fund the, the spaces, is quite frankly ludicrous. And the teaching community has made that very, very clear since she announced that. It's a poorly thought out idea. And the fact that she would justify it by trying to say, well, you know, this is how we did things 100, 150 years ago. Maybe everything old is new again. Is really, more than anything, 
just a dog whistle to times gone by, and it doesn't seem to have any consideration whatsoever for the quality of education that students would receive. But she was just getting started because towards the end of the rally, she was asked what her position would be. How would she deal with the federal government putting in travel restrictions? And this is where things really get off the rails. So maybe it's that simple. Maybe what we do is we just identify certain flights as charter flights for uh, the Canadian for the Alberta government. Maybe we uh, make everyone on that plane a diplomat. It's hard to know where to get started with such a short audio clip where there's so much to unpack. But let's just say this. Despite the fact that Miss Smith seems to be convinced that, that she's going to give herself the power and the authority to overrule the federal government wherever she sees fit, which is, by the way, as we'll get in a little bit later, a terrifying proposition. She seems to have completely ignored the fact there is no Alberta diplomatic corps. Diplomats are federal. The types of passports that are required for somebody to be a diplomat, those passports are issued federally. Those passports also have to be recognized by the country that that person is traveling to. Otherwise, they don't mean anything. So the idea that Daniel Smith could just give a plane load of people diplomatic immunity, not because they're actually doing any kind of diplomatic mission, not because they're qualified, not because they've gone through the hiring and sorting process that exists for creating diplomats, not because of any of those things, but because they really want to go to Florida is quite frankly mind-boggling. Because the implication is that whatever country these people decided that they were going to travel to on these Alberta diplomatic charter flights that Miss Smith would be creating is that those people would have diplomatic immunity in any country that they're going to. And I'm hard pressed to think what nation would say, hey, you know what? You're already actively subverting the laws of the country that you're coming from. But come here and you can do whatever you want. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's misinformed, and it's not based on any facts. But as we go through the rest of the list that we have, you'll see it's definitely a theme. One of the things that came up shortly after the Airdrie rally had to do with a GoFundMe that Daniel Smith had set up a little while ago. Now, this GoFundMe was ostensibly created to uh, start a lawsuit so that physicians who wanted to provide alternate treatments could do that. Because there were some physicians, reportedly, who were trying some, I'm going to go ahead and use the word batshit, methods to deal with COVID that had no scientific basis. Bearing in mind that this is Danielle Smith, the same one who said, ah, there's a 100% cure rate of COVID with hydroxychloroquine. It was around the same time that this GoFundMe was started up. Now, the updates on this GoFundMe were pretty few and far between, but it eventually evolved into the idea that, well, we also need to uh, make sure that if people want to take different vaccines, we should have those vaccines available. So really more than anything, it seemed like this was just sort of a, 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 a grievance GoFundMe around... Um, whatever would get people angriest at the moment. But it raised a boatload of money. Raised over $100,000. Uh, 
And there were some updates that were provided in regards to what was going on with that money. The first major update, and the only one that we could find up until a couple of days ago, that said anything to do with any kind of where the money's going, had to do with a $10,000 retainer that was paid to a law firm in Airdrie. And we got a little curious. We're curious folks here. What's that law firm? So we looked it up. That's a law firm out of Airdrie. But the guy on the right, for some reason, the, the, the guy without the glasses, he looked really familiar. And we're trying to figure out, why does he, why does he look for, so familiar? And then we remembered, there was just recently a big internet forum with all of the UCP candidates, and that guy looked awfully familiar. And the reason is because that's Rob Anderson with the Free Alberta Strategy. The Free Alberta Strategy, by the way, is the... I don't know, advocacy group, I guess, organization, I'm really not sure what to call them, who created the Alberta, the idea for the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Rob Anderson is also an ex-MLA. He's one of the Wild Rose MLAs who crossed the floor with Daniel Smith. So they go way, way back. So it was really interesting to us that Rob Anderson, who is one of the architects, presumably, of the uh, Alberta Sovereignty Act. He's also now, we know, the chair of her leadership campaign. It's his law firm that he's a partner in that got the $10,000, which is fascinating. And so we were kind of curious, what's 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 going on there? So we, we tweeted out some things. Um, and it turns out that Daniel Smith actually went on the Jesperson show. And she provided a little bit of clarity, but she also provided the first update in months on the GoFundMe. And what that update was, was simply before I decided to throw my hat in the ring for the UCP leadership, I asked Mr. Fromm, again, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, to find a way to donate my crowdsourced funds that sat unspent in the retainer account. I just want to read that part again. I asked Mr. Fromm to find a way to donate my crowdsourced funds that sat unspent in the retainer account. So she's talking about the money that she gave to the lawyers in the retainer account for the lawsuit that was presumably going to happen, but never, ever did. Um, To other legal actions on similar issues, Mr. Fromm suggested that the retainer funds go to the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, in particular Brian Peckford's case and the Alberta Doctors case. You know, those Alberta doctors that apparently don't have names. Um, You can read more about these excited cases on the JCCF's website. So that still left us with some questions because it seems like, on the face of it, Daniel Smith gave $10,000 to the lawyers in a retainer account and that money was then donated. But like I said, she also appeared on Jesperson that morning thirty thousand dollars went to wka lawyers yeah uh, because we were doing as i mentioned the pre-work of just trying to to vet the different uh, doctors to to try to find a a candidate who would be able to help us and then we ultimately Mm. are going to be working with jccf to to support their uh to support their effort okay so to be clear no funds raised from that crowdfunding effort are involved in the 175,000, whatever it is that you just no, ponied gosh, up and paid no. the other none day. Of, yeah, no. you, you know, I have to ask, right? People want me to ask none the question. Of, no, yeah. none of that. Is, you can't do that. And she's absolutely right. You can't take that much money and donate it to a leadership race. But what was interesting there is she was very specific 
that it was $30,000 that they'd given to the lawyers in the retainer account. And then she posts the GoFundMe update that says, oh, we gave the entire, uh, we, we gave the entire uh, account, uh, the retainer account, to the JCCF. Problem is, raised $100,000, just over $100,000. And so that got us wondering, where did the other $71,000 and change go? And we actually tried to ask Danielle Smith that. Uh, we, we, we put up a couple of messages. We, we tagged her in some things. Uh, we didn't we didn't really hear anything from her. And then it got even more interesting because we couldn't help notice that one of the things that was in her updates was that uh, she'd actually gotten vaccinated. And in order to get vaccinated, she she went to Phoenix um, and she posted a little update where she talked about her, her little vacation trip. She said, I went to Phoenix, but I would have gone to San Francisco if I'd known this option was available. You have to get tested on the way out and the way in. If you do a quick turnaround, you can get away with just one PCR test. If you can do some business while you're down there, you can qualify for an exemption. If you don't qualify, your choices are to stay down there for two weeks until your jab is, air quotes, valid, or come back and quarantine for 14 days. So we asked Ms. Smith uh, if she would consider potentially, um, if she would if she would think about maybe because $100,000 is a lot of money. I mean, 30000 to go to the JCCF. I'm sure they're very happy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I know the JCCF has been issuing tax receipts. wonder who got that. But um, we'd still like to know where the other 70000 went. And so we asked Daniel Smith, you know, would you be willing to provide a full, uh, because you're all into transparency. You're all in about making sure that people are responsible with the public's money. This is the thing you're running for is soon to be your fingers are crossed. Many people's fingers are uncrossed. Uh, Premier of Alberta. We, we kind of got a response this morning. Danielle Smith blocked us. So that's, that's nice. But we're still not done with Danielle Smith's very, very busy, very, very bad week. Because Danielle Smith announced midweek that she was going to be doing another rally in Calgary. And she had a special guest lined up for that rally. And that special guest was Theron Fleury. For anybody who's been paying any kind of attention to, to Mr. Flurry, he's got some interesting ideas about what's been going on with, with COVID. Uh, he has said that he believes that the, the vaccination passports, uh, those were issued so that pedophiles could know where your kids were uh, at all times. Uh, and just recently, when Mr. Trudeau the Prime Minister of Canada was memorializing um, somebody who had passed. Uh, I'll read Mr. Trudeau's tweet. Uh, Max Eisen suffered the unimaginable horrors during the Holocaust and survived. In the decades that followed, he dedicated himself to educating people everywhere about the atrocities that unfolded under the Nazi regime. I was saddened to learn of his passing yesterday. Respectful tweet, memorializing the survivor of, a hol of the Holocaust. Theo Fleury decided to weigh in with his thoughts. As we are suffering through yours now. Now, Mr. Fleury's rhetoric has been, let's go with problematic, for quite some time. But to try to compare the health measures that governments around the world implemented in order to try to prevent healthcare systems from collapsing, in order to try to prevent massive loss of life. For him to feel comfortable publicly comparing that to the Holocaust 
is, as far as I'm concerned, I'm speaking for myself now, a form of Holocaust denialism because it minimizes the atrocities that happened under the Nazis. It minimizes the harm. It minimizes the genocide. And we could talk, and we have talked on the show, about how Canada isn't so great when it comes to genocide either. But for Mr. Fleury to invoke one of the worst periods of the last century and try to compare it to dealing with public health measures is not only ignorant, it's not only irresponsible, it's not only demonstrably and factually wrong, it is hurtful to the families of people who lived through that. Yeah, I'm going to editorialize for just a brief second here, but I've had conversations with friends of mine since Mr. Flurry threw this tweet out, and he does have a very big profile. He's got a lot of, a lot of followers. And the amount of people that I've talked to who were deeply, deeply hurt and deeply, deeply angry that Mr. Flurry would consider this sort of thing appropriate to say is absolutely heartbreaking. There's the expression, those who learn from history are bound to repeat, or those that fail to learn from history are bound to repeat it. And it's scary to me that Mr. Fleury clearly has not learned his history lessons very well. But even more scary to me is the fact that Danielle Smith saw fit to platform him to talk about mental health at her rally and the mental health impacts of COVID. Now, Mr. Fleury has had some very real mental health structure. He's had some very real mental health struggles, and I'm not in any way minimizing them, nor am I trying to. But just because somebody has had struggles doesn't make them an expert, especially when their struggles are so different in nature than what people have experienced under COVID. But nonetheless, despite the fact that Mr. Fleury only a couple of days beforehand put up his Holocaust denialism tweet. That's what I'm going to call it. Nonetheless, she decided she was going to hold him up as some kind of an expert. Now, it's worth noting, Danielle Smith, she's got, uh, she's got some problems with metaphor herself. Just a little while ago, she wrote an article in The Herald that ended up having a clarification added to it. That clarification read, the horrors of the Holocaust are without precedent and no modern day event should ever be compared to it. That was added to Danielle Smith's article. So there's no way that she didn't know that no modern day event should ever be compared to it. And the reason why that was added is because in her article, what she had to say was, we are now having a national discussion of whether people should be forced to take one of the new mRNA vaccines as if the Nuremberg trials never happened. Recall the 10 principle Nuremberg Code was formulated more than 70 years ago by American judges sitting in judgment of Nazi doctors accused of conducting human experiments in concentration camps. So I guess we know why she gets along so well with, uh, with Mr. Flurry. But even then, we're not done talking about all of the things that Daniel Smith did this week. And this next one, while the, the, the platforming a Holocaust denialist and holding him up as an expert, not condemning his tweet, while all of those things um, are deeply, deeply uh, offensive, 
This next example is perhaps the greatest one that demonstrates that she has absolutely no business running for Premier of Alberta. Because also when she was on Jesperson's show, she had a few thoughts to say about AHS. I think we have to... Uh, challenge Alberta Health Services. They are, are either incompetent or that, they, or they went out of their way to sabotage the UCP government. I watched the fir- very first press conference that the premier gave back in in March or, or April, where he gave direct instruction to Alberta Health Services to increase the number of ICU beds by 1,089. And then I think everybody was going along thinking they were working on finding that surge capacity. Then when the Delta variant came along last fall, we found out that not only had they not increased ICU beds, they had decreased them. And I've a lot of time talking to frontline nurses and doctors, especially in rural areas. And they told me that their um, facilities were empty. So Alberta Health Services, I think, let us all down by failing to find that surge capacity. We gave them lots of money, lots of time. And I think that that's where we should be focusing our effort. Because what I'm concerned about is that every single year we get into a crunch with the respiratory virus season. We cannot allow now, incompetent management at Alberta Health Services to say the only answer is to shut down society, close schools, punish kids. That's not appropriate. The, the, the right answer is making sure we've got enough capacity to manage that surge when it comes as it does every single year. Some years it's going to be influenza. Some years it's going to be coronaviruses. Some years it's going to be adenoviruses or rhinoviruses. There's always something that is going to cause real problems. And we, we have to make sure that our health system is up to it. Clearly wasn't this time around. Hmm. You don't really think that Alberta Health Services was trying to sabotage the government do you i don't know how to interpret it any other way all i do know is that dr Bernard Yu was let go a month a year before her uh, ex- her contract extension was up so somebody's come to the same conclusion i has that she just wasn't up for the job yeah someone trying to save his own political skin probably don't you think i mean that's what prompted this entire leadership no. race I, I look at the facts, and the facts are they uh, were given a direct instruction to increase surge, surge capacity, and they failed. They reduced uh, surge capacity, or they reduced ICU capacity, and that's unacceptable. Now, I grew up as a big fan of of, of Star Wars. I was a, I was a, I, I saw some of the the original three in, in the theaters. I'm a, I'm a little on the older side, and I actually enjoyed the the newest set. And the first thing that comes to my mind as I listen to Danielle Smith's little diatribe there goes back to the the line that Luke Skywalker spoke to to Kylo Ren. It's amazing how every word in that was wrong because Danielle Smith managed to get just about every word of that wrong. So going through things from the very, very start, it wasn't 1,089, it was 1,081. By the way, all of this information that I'm about to share with you is readily available through any kind of Google search. You can get it off the Alberta government's websites. You can get it off of news stories from the time. We refer to a story from the Edmonton Journal that came out on April 8th. Uh, And in that news story, it talked about the fact that the surge capacity was 1,081 beds. Now let's talk for a second about what surge capacity is because it's very clear that at the very least, Danielle Smith needs a refresher. So what surge capacity is, is it's the ability, if you need it, to go ahead and add to what your capacity is. It's kind of like if you've ever gone to the store and bought a box of Band-Aids when you weren't bleeding. You didn't need to use all of those Band-Aids right away, but you wanted to know that you had them in case you did. 
That's what surge capacity is. And AHS had actually identified what areas they would need to transitions if they needed to, if they needed to convert operating rooms, if they needed to convert recovery rooms, if they needed to convert treatment rooms. They identified all of the things that they, the spaces that they could create. It was very, very clear that they I had identified those spaces. Now, what's really important to highlight here is that Danielle Smith doesn't seem to have any sort of understanding whatsoever of what surge capacity is. She certainly doesn't seem to understand at all that that surge capacity piece would have removed other pieces from the healthcare system. We've heard lots of people talk about the fact that they weren't able to get surgeries. We've heard lots of people talk about the fact that they weren't able to get testing. Now, most of that had to do with the fact that there were a lot of personnel who were moved into ICU treatment areas when there were surge beds that were needed. But the province never needed the 1,081 beds that they identified they could use if they had to. There was more of a shortage of staffing than anything else. Now, unfortunately, Daniel Smith doesn't seem to quite grasp that. And she seems to think that it would be entirely reasonable to staff and procure and shut down those treatment rooms, shut down those surgical suites, shut down those recovery centers, and staff them. When, if you take a look at what the peak number of ICU patients has been throughout the entire pandemic, it's 257. That's it. So it doesn't make any sense to have built those 1,081 or 89, according to Ms. Smith, beds when the most that the province has ever needed at one time was 257. And there were always ICU beds that were made available for patients. Now, those ICU beds were absolutely staffed by nurses and respiratory therapists and physicians and the whole gamut of healthcare professionals who worked themselves to the bone. But there was never a period of time where we needed 1,081 ICU beds. Like I said, the maximum number of patients that was ever required was 257. And what's really interesting is that the province actually has gone ahead and built and committed to building more ICU beds. They've said that they're going to add 50 new ICU beds across the province. And it's important to understand where those beds go as well, because as much as Ms. Smith wants to talk about, well, you know, I talked to all these people in these rural hospitals and they've got all these spaces, that's because most rural hospitals don't have ICU beds. Most rural hospitals have regular beds or long-term care beds. Most rural hospitals, you have to go to a major center like Grand Prairie or Calgary or Edmonton in order to start talking about ICU beds. It's the big areas where lots of people live that ICU beds are concentrated. They aren't put in rural hospitals because rural hospitals, quite frankly, couldn't afford the three to five staff that every single ICU bed requires in order to operate. That's three to five staff to one bed. Can you imagine 
having an ICU bed in a, in a rural hospital that has no need for an ICU. You're just going to pay three to five people to hang around and, I don't know, Twitter <laughs> or something. It's, it's, it's ridiculous and it's absolutely laughable. But it's exactly what Miss Smith seems to think should have happened. We should have had roughly 3,000 employees sitting around doing nothing because, again, we peaked out at 257. Now, another thing that's important to realize is that as much as Daniel Smith likes to talk about the fact that there are these 1,089 beds that were spaced out and they actually decreased the number, that's because the models changed. As we moved through different surges, Alberta Health Services were able to recognize hey, you know what? Right now, we're only projecting that we're going to need this many beds. So we can scale that back and we can, we can make sure that those spaces are doing what those spaces are supposed to do. But that's not how Danielle Smith presented it. And it's not how she's been presenting it at all to her audiences. And for her to go after Verna Yu, who, my God, if you go on any form of social media, the number of healthcare people who have stepped up and said, Verna Yu was amazing at her job. She was the thing that kept the whole thing together. For her to say that Verna Yu was fired because she deliberately tried to sabotage the UCP using information that is simply not accurate or based in any way in reality, this is the person who wants to be the next premier of Alberta. This person who encourages far-right extremism. This person who trades in false science. This person who seems to approach public speaking and public policy from a place of, you know what, I'm just going to stand up here in front of a microphone and just I'm just going to spitball it. I'm going to see what kind of ideas come to me. and They don't have to be based on any kind of research or facts or, I don't know, reality. You know what we should do? We should make everybody diplomats. Everybody should also get an ice cream sandwich. Twice a day. I think that ice cream sandwiches, you know, the science is showing that ice cream sandwiches, they actually reduce calories. That's the kind of rhetoric that we've come to expect from Danielle Smith, and it's entirely on brand for her. There was a tweet that circulated just a little while ago talking about the fact that Danielle Smith was talking about flat earthers. And the tragic reality of the situation is nobody knew if it was a joke. The unfortunate reality of the situation, though, when it comes to Danielle Smith, is because she's trading in ignorance, because she's trading in anger. This is what she's feeding her base. There are a lot of people who are showing up for her. It was reported this week that she has sold 7,000 UCP memberships in the last 10 days, and those reports also suggest that's a low number. There are a lot of people who are buying the bullshit that she's selling. And to wrap up the episode this week before we throw it to the floor in case anybody wants to, to weigh in and maybe correct me on some things if I got anything wrong, um, I want to I wanna leave with a quote from the same article where Danielle Smith talked about the Nuremberg trials and compared them and talked about them in the context of covid Daniel Smith said, it seems the lesson, the, the lesson is this. If we, the people, don't actively choose a side, do you want the king to have less power in your life or more power? The king will simply seize it. Daniel Smith has talked about disregarding federal law. 
Daniel Smith has talked about creating a police force that will do whatever she tells them to. It's starting to look more and more like the king may turn out to be a queen. And that's it for our weekly roundup so far. Um, if anybody has anything they want to add to the conversation, absolutely. Please feel free to raise your hand. I'm going to do my little closing spiel. But if anybody does have anything to add, would love to hear from you. Um, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who tuned in to listen tonight on the Twitter spaces. I want to say a big thank you to everybody who uh, was watching the, the live stream. Uh, on the on the YouTubes, uh, this of course will be turned into a uh, an audio podcast. Uh, so thank you if you're listening to the audio podcast, and we're going to throw the video up on the Facebook machine because that's where people do things. Um, and so it'll be available there as well. So if you wanted to see some of the graphics that we used, you can take a look at them all there. I want to say a big thank you again to our Patreon supporters. It's because of their support that we're able to continue to build out the machine a little bit. And it's why we have the toys where we're able to, to start doing the live streaming and all of those other things. It's also how we have built the little cross-platform thing that allows us to have conversations if anybody wants to share anything on the, the Twitter spaces. Um, if you want to support the kind of work that we're doing here, you can sign up to be one of our Twitter or our Patreon supporters at www.patreon.com slash the breakdown AB. We try to give a few perks to our Patreon supporters, thus the discord um, and uh, every once in a while some merch. Um, and so, uh, and you just get a good warm, fuzzy feeling from knowing that you're helping us to yell into the void. Um, so if you want to do that for the cost of a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can five bucks a month, you can help us do the things, the crazy things that we do. We have some great stuff coming up, by the way. Um, Daniel Smith's PR person did respond to our, uh, our, our interview request and said, oh, yeah, you're those guys, and then didn't respond to any more of our emails. So we're fairly comfortable she won't be coming on the show anytime soon. But as anybody who's been paying attention to the show for any length of time knows, when, when we can't get interviews with, with people, then we get interviews with puppets. And we have two that are ready to go. We'll be seeing one of them next week. So that'll be fun. Uh, and that's another one of the things that, that the support from our Patreon supporters allows us to do. Um, we, we, we make puppets and, and other fun things. Um, doesn't look like anybody else wants to say anything tonight. So I want to say again, a big thank you for everyone for tuning in. Um, and on a personal note, speaking before only myself, not anyone else involved with the show. Um, you know, if, if, I think that we've demonstrated fairly clearly that Miss Smith is wrong about almost everything. But the one thing that she's not wrong about is that decisions are made by people who, who show up and choose a side. And there is a UCP leadership race going on. And to uh, steal a phrase from another Alberta Politico pundit, Deirdre, um, the next premium of, the Al of Alberta is going to be chosen by a private club. And for only 10 bucks, you can be a member of that club. Doesn't mean you have to vote for them in the general. And if you feel like you about giving them 10 bucks, give 20 bucks to another political party or a cause or a charity that, that you believe in. Uh, because otherwise, we're going to get Daniel Smith, it's looking like, based on the most recent polling for eight months. And if you've been listening to this show for the last hour, that should terrify you. And that's it for us. Take care of yourselves. And please do keep the conversation going. Thank mm -hmm. you.